When Martha and I first uh, were married on June 5th, 1949, first, we, were, we haven't been married the second time. I mean, that, that sounds like we were married first, June the 5th, night. We married on June the 5th, 1949 for the one and only time, right, Martha? You never know what people are going to hear out of you more than you intended to say. Uh, anyway, we, uh, after we were married, uh, we were in revival meetings the rest of the summer and then went to the seminary in New Orleans where we were for a year and a half for two years. And we both were involved in mission ministries within the city. Uh, we were required to by the school as part of our uh, credits for missions. But we also did more than that because we got involved with the people we were working with. We spent a lot more time working with them than was required by the school. Martha worked at the women's prison, uh, working there weekly, counseling and singing and, and just uh, generally encouraging and having fellowship with women in the, in the parish prison in New Orleans. I, I worked and preached at least once a week, sometimes more, uh, down at the Riverfront Mission, uh, down in the 40 blocks of uh, New Orleans, uh, down past Bourbon Street, on down toward uh, the rougher part of, of, uh, of that part of town. And there is a rougher part than that. And you get down on the waterfront, and uh, Clovis Brantley was working there, uh, directing that uh, rescue mission, much like Bill Ward does here in San Antonio at the rescue mission. Tremendous ministry for men uh, on the street uh, who were sleeping on the street. You could come in, you could, uh, you'd hear a sermon, you could get uh, a good warm meal, you could get some clothes, and you'd get uh, a good bed uh, to sleep in. And so some of that money that you give for this home mission ministry goes for just that, through the SAM Center and through the CAM Center and to the rescue mission that Bill Ward uh, leads so effectively. So I, I grew up uh, in my ministerial days doing a lot of preaching at the rescue mission. And Clovis Brantley, who had been there 15 or 20 years, he has since gone to be with the Lord, and that rescue mission is now named after him. He, uh, he said to me after I'd been there for a couple of three weeks, he was teaching me about how to, how to witness and to work with, with uh, men in that uh, disastrous situation. And uh, he said, Buckner, let me make a suggestion to you. He said, when you preach, and you've preached here a number of times, and I want you to preach as often as you want to be, come down here. But uh, you haven't done it, but I want to ask you, please do not preach on the parable of the prodigal son. He said, these men have heard more sermons on the parable of the prodigal son than any other subject in the Bible. In fact, Buckner, they know a lot more about the far country than you'll ever know. So you preach to them about hope and grace and love and forgiveness and the power of God to change your life. But he said, now listen, one of these days when you're in a, in a church and, and there are people that are, that are socially acceptable and respectable, kind of unlike the crowd you're going to find at the rescue mission, uh, you preach on the parable of the prodigal son. And I have, and I will, and I'm going to right now. It's one of the, it's one of the, my favorite stories, if, if the Lord told me that I had only one passage of scripture to preach from for an entire ministry, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and I had to, to select one passage of scripture, I would select the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I believe there's enough preaching there. There's enough basic biblical material there to preach on for a lifetime. Uh, look, look at it. Let me, let me describe it for you. A great crowd of people were following Jesus. A big crowd of people. 
They were always crowded, crowded around him. Now let me show you the mixture of the crowd. At least Luke tells us the mixture of the crowd. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners. That meant people who were not religiously acceptable. That meant uh, prostitutes who were followers of Jesus. Uh, that meant uh, a fisherman and people who'd sold out to the Roman occupying force. It meant uh, pretty much the, the underside of life. Uh, they were following Jesus. They were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes, now those were the ultra-religious people of the day, the fundamentalists of the day, the judgmentalists of the day, the Mr. Better Than Thou, uh, better than everybody else person. Uh, they were there and they were grumbling, which is one of the things that Pharisees do best of all. They were grumbling saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. My, that was a, wasn't that a horrible accusation? And that's what they laid on Jesus. He eats with sinners. He travels with them. And they follow him. And so Jesus responded by telling three stories. In a way, he was saying, listen, fellas, stand real still because I want to paint your picture, your word picture. And that's what he did. He told three stories. I'm not going to tell uh, the first two uh, because they're all at least one sermon or more in and of themselves. But the first one's a parable of the lost sheep. Second one's a parable of the, of the lost coin. And the third one is the parable of what we call the prodigal son. But listen, there were two boys and both of them were prodigals. One was a prodigal who went to the far country and spent his substance in riotous living. The other went to church and felt proud and judgmental and sanctimonious and better than everybody else. He was away from the father just as much as the boy in the far country. There are two boys here and one father. Now in this story, Jesus is obviously telling us that the man in this story, the father in this story, is a picture of God. The hero of this story are not the two boys, either one of them. The hero of this story is God. The hero of the Bible is God. The hero of the Bible is not David and Moses and Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're all people whom God used in a marvelous way. But the hero of the Bible is God. It's a revelation of the character and nature of God. And what Jesus is showing us here is what God is like. He said, a certain man, a man is God, in Jesus' connotation, had two sons. Now listen, we are the two sons. I mean, each one of us individually are the two sons. There are a couple of people inside of us. There's one inside of us that wants to go to the far country and maybe has, in varying degrees, gone to the far country at times and come back. And then over on the other side, or those of us who maybe have been back for a long time and begin to think that we're to judge everybody else. And we're better than everybody else. So he's talking about us. He's drawing a picture of me and of you. Well, the younger boy, symptomatic of the sins of the youthful, he said, I've had it with this household, I'm leaving. Will you please give me my part of the inheritance? That was very improper for him to do, but though it was legal, uh, he had the right to do it in Jewish law, and so the father did it. He divided his inheritance between them. Very important to remember that. He gave the same amount to the younger boy that he gave to the older boy. And the younger boy, it says, left. Now, in my mind and imagination, uh, Jesus didn't put all of this in his story. But when I hear it and think about it, I've thought about it a lot, 
a lot through the years. Um, I can see the father coming down to breakfast one morning. And he gets there and his wife is there and the servants are there. The older brother's there. And he sees an empty chair and starts eating breakfast thinking maybe the younger brother's kind of sleeping in this morning. And, and he calls to him. I don't know what his name was. Called him. No answer. Made him a little nervous, so he got up and went to the bedroom. He was not there. He looked in the closet. Most of the clothes had been packed. He walked out to the front door, thought maybe he'd just gone out in the fields to do some work. And looked down the road, and in the distance, he could see that figure walking away. And he stood there and said, My God, my boy's gone. He's gone. Every day he'd watch for him to come home. The boy went to the far country and he spent everything he had in riotous living. And he ended up, they had a famine in the land and he got hungry. Once he spent all of his money, he lost all of his friends. Now I do not know the specifics of what he did. It's just enough to know that he spent his substance in riotous living. We don't need a detail by detail account of the sins, then or now. Uh, this, the far country is enough. And he's so lost everything. He had a famine in the land and he went down and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Can you imagine how degrading it was for that Jewish boy to have to feed pigs? And he was so hungry, he was about to eat the food that the pigs were eating. And he's, the Bible says, he came to himself. My translation says, when he came to his senses, he came to himself. You know, there's a sense in which willful, intentional, repeated sin is a form of moral insanity. Moral insanity. To do something we know is going to be detrimental to us and destructive to other people, harmful to us and hurtful to them, to intentionally and to willfully do that is a form of moral insanity. He came to himself. He finally took a look at himself. And of course, his physical surroundings was an accentuation of his depravity. But listen to me. We all need to take a look at ourselves. We need to come to our senses. All the prodigals are not in pig's pens. There are some that live in beautiful, magnificently furnished homes with carpets and air conditioning and televisions and VCRs, and telephones, and two or three cars in the garage. But it is a pig's pen morally if they're away from God. 
if you're away from home. Camus was supposed to be a, uh, reputed to be, an existential atheist, Frenchman, philosopher, writer. But he made a statement that may betray something about him that he was thinking and feeling that was redemptive in nature. He said, man is the only creature who refuses to be what he is. Man is the only creature who refuses to be what he is. What was it? We were created in the image of God. We're to be like him. We're to be part of his family. We're to love him. He loves us. We're to be family. He came to himself. Well, he started home, but he made up a speech before he started. He said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm down here starving to death. Someone said, well, Buckner, the only reason he went home, the only reason he went home was because he was hungry. Well, what's wrong with that? I don't care what causes me to turn to the Lord. It's a good thing. Now, God does not bring disasters into our lives uh, or allow them even to happen as a, as, as a punitive measure to punish us. We do that to ourselves. God wants to use everything that happens to us, good or bad, as a way of reminding us that we need to be at home with him. God's purposes are not punitive. God's purposes are always redemptive, always loving. And if the food was what bought told the boy to head home first. Wonderful. He went home with an empty stomach, but when he got there, he found a full heart of love from the Heavenly Father. So he started home. He started home. Maybe he went to a rescue mission down there in Pigland, where he was living. Maybe he heard a preacher. You know, I've been reading recently about William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Uh, he was kicked out of the Methodist Church because he went out and started ministering to people on the street. He was, he was in the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church founded by John Wesley, who himself had been kicked out of the Episcopal Church because he wanted to preach to the coal miners out in the fields. It's interesting how so often God's purposes come out of the church rather than through it. We need to be sensitive to that. God wants to work through his people, with his people. But General Booth, he made a statement I'll always remember from reading him. He said, uh, the more I'm with some Christians, the better I like sinners. <laughs> and I know the kind he's talking about. General Booth, he said this. He said that no man, he, he did what Bill Ward does and what we do in rescue missions. You get them in off the street and you have a sermon and you let them get warm, you give them some food and some clothing and you talk to them about the Lord. General Booth said, no man can pray when his feet are cold. No man can pray when his feet are cold. No man can pray very much if his stomach is empty. So he practiced on the pigs this speech he was going to make to his father. He said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no more worthy to be called your son. I believe he practiced that on the pigs until it made them sick. I think they were trying to say to him, go, go, get out of here. <laughs> Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Well, he started home and you know the story, but let me tell it quickly because I need to get to boy number two and then a story that will help you. It helps me. 
The father saw him when he was a great way off. And the father ran to meet him. Here's a picture of God. He saw him. He was a long way off. And he started running. Aristotle said, great men never run in public. But Aristotle never knew Jesus. And the God he revealed, who runs in public to welcome a dirty, stinking boy coming home, covered with the smell of a pig pen. And he threw his arms around him and began to kiss him. And the boy tried to make his speech. And he got out part of it before the father interrupted him. He said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. He had another phrase. He was going to say, make me as one of your hired servants. But the father never let him utter another sound. He said, that's enough, that's enough. Bring the best robe and put it on this boy. And who had the best robe? Surely it wasn't the boys. Who had the best robe in that house? The father did. He wraps around you the best he has. Put the best robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. Slaves went barefooted. Only sons could wear shoes in the house. Put shoes on this boy. He's not coming home as a slave. He's coming home as a son. He's not coming home on probation. He's coming home on salvation. Full and free. And kill a fatted calf and let's have a party. Call Willie Nelson and we're going to have a barbecue. <laughs> For this my son was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. And they began to have a party. And now his older brother was out in the field. And he approached the house and he heard music and dancing. Dancing. That's out of the 15th chapter of Luke written 2,000 years ago. And they just read it up at Baylor a year or two ago. Uh, He heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring, what's going on here? And he said, well, your brother's home. Your father's killed the fatted calf and given a party for him because he's back safe and sound. But he got angry. He wasn't glad. He wasn't, didn't say, oh, isn't that great? He's home. He's home. He was angry and was not willing to go in. Not willing to go in. And his father came out to him. I want you to notice the initiative of the father in both of the son's lives. When the prodigal that had been in the far country started home, the father ran to meet him. When this self-righteous brother was standing outside angry because the other boy had come home. What did the father do? He went out and begged him to come in. I want you in there. It's not the party it will be without you. Come on in. Come on in. But listen to what the boy said. He answered and said to his father, look, for all these years I've been serving you and have never neglected a commandment of yours and yet you've never given me a calf that I might have a party with my friends. But when this son of yours, do you notice he couldn't call his brother, brother? He didn't say when my brothers come home. He said, when this son of yours has come home, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, he didn't know that. He just knew what he would have done had he been in the far country. And he projected onto his brother his own desires. He didn't know that. Harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, it's a tender word. He said, my child, like I would say to one of my grandchildren, my child, my little one, my loved one, 
Everything I have is yours. You've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to be merry and have a party and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live again and was lost and has been found. There's room at the Father's house for all of us. I don't know who said it, but I've said it enough that I want to keep on saying it. This story reminds me of it, that no one can go back and have a new beginning, but everyone can begin now and have a new ending. Not one of us in this room can go back and have a new beginning, but we can begin now and have a new ending. Fred Craddock is a pastor, former pastor, preacher in the uh, Disciples Church and a teacher and professor now at Emory University. He teaches New Testament and he teaches homiletics, which is preaching, the art of preaching, manner of preaching, and, uh, and Greek. And he and his wife, uh, I've heard him, Martha's heard him, I've heard him on tape, I've read his books, remarkable man. He and his wife had gone to East Tennessee on a little vacation, three or four day vacation away from school. And uh, they were in East Tennessee, up near Gatlinburg in that, in that area. And they were eating dinner in this little restaurant in this small town. And a man came in, an elderly man, a very distinguished looking man, who knew everybody in the, in the restaurant shook hands with everybody and called them by name. And he came to the table where the Craddocks were seated and he said, uh, I don't believe I know you all. Are you all visitors here? And Fred Craddock introduced himself. He said, uh, yeah, we're visiting. And he said, I'm a professor of New Testament down at Emory University. And, and I was a pastor for many years and preacher for many, many years. And this man said, oh, if you're a pastor, I, I want to tell you my story. So he pulled up a chair and sat down. And he said, I grew up just over the hill here in a little town, a little village. He said, my mother was never married and gave birth to me and everybody in town knew that I didn't have a father. That I was an illegitimate child. And said, they never let me forget it. He said, when I walked down the street with my mother, I could see the looks. I could feel the looks. And he said, at school, I always ate lunch alone. And at recess, they never invited me to play. And they called me everything that you call an illegitimate child. He said, I've heard all the words. And he said, I walk around all the time, my head down. And he said, I began to hear around town that had a new preacher in town that was really a terrific preacher. And everybody was going to hear him. And he said, I decided to go hear him. And he said, I'd go in late because I was afraid that if they saw me come in when everybody else did, they'd tell me that you don't have any business in here. So I'd wait and come in late. And I'd hear him preach. And when he was just about to finish, I could tell him he was about to finish, I'd slip out early. I didn't want to be confronted and embarrassed. But he said one Sunday, 
I got so captivated by what he was saying that he'd finished and I was still there. And in that little church, he walked to the back door and would shake hands with everybody leaving. He said, I sat way over there waiting for everybody else to get out. And then I, I walked up there and tried to get past him kind of by, by, I thought I could slip past him, my head down. He said, he, he looked at me and he said, son, look at me. He said, I reluctantly looked up at him and he said, whose son are you? And he said, oh, I thought, obviously this preacher had heard. He said, whose son are you? He said, son, I see the family resemblance. You're a child of God. Go and take your inheritance. You're a child of God. And he hugged me. And he said, that one statement from that preacher put all the stars back in my sky. You're a child of God. Take your inheritance. It's a gift from God. So that statement changed my life. My name is Ben Hooper. I've been elected governor of Tennessee twice. I've been able to serve people all of my life. And my life has been changed because I realized that God loved me. My friend, you're a child of God. I can see the family resemblance in every one of you. Accept your inheritance. Grace. Love. Joy. Peace. It's yours. It's yours. So whether you're a prodigal in the far country or a pious referee on the sidelines, come on home to the Father's house where the ground is always level at the cross and we're all equal before God. Amen. Amen. God's invitation, not mine. Please hear me. You don't say no to me today. Ever. You don't say no to me. That'd be easy to do. Every now and then when we don't have any public decisions, people say, oh, Buckner, I fell for you today. Well, I, I, I feel myself. I'm concerned about that. But listen, don't worry about how I feel. Think about how God feels. You're not saying no to me today. You're not saying yes to me today. You're saying yes or no to God and I invite you to say yes to him, to trust him as your savior, to come be a part of his church to help us be better Christians, to accept our inheritance. You may want to join some other church in this city, but don't leave here without accepting the Lord as your savior. I'll be right here to greet you, whatever God impresses you to do. To move your membership from another church to be a part of this fellowship as part of your inheritance, come on and accept it. This is God's invitation. Let's stand and sing together.